The most exciting thing around AI is, you know, it holds the potential to really fundamentally change the way that we all interact and, and leverage software. There's this notion, I think, that every company will become an AI company. You know, it's not necessarily that AI is going to full-on replace things as they look today, but I do think that things will look markedly different. I think it's worth thinking through these things because there's too many people out there right now that are sort of just overhyping the promise of AI. Hi, I'm Rachel Chalmers, and this is Generation Ship, the podcast at the intersection of infrastructure and artificial intelligence. We are the generation that's exploring generative AI. We are a finite group of people with a finite set of resources, and we have to share this infrastructure. We have to find fair and ethical ways to do that. The first generation ship has already set sail. It's the planet Earth, and you and I are the crew. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome Weilian Dang. Wei is a general partner at Unusual Ventures and leads investment in dev tools, security, data infrastructure, and open source software. He's spent more than a decade building products at startups. Wei was a co-founder of Stackbox, a cloud-native security company, where he was responsible for product management, user experience, product marketing, and technical evangelism prior to its acquisition by Red Hat. Before that, Wei held product leadership roles at CoreOS, also acquired by Red Hat, Bracket Computing, acquired by VMware and Amazon Web Services. He's also spent time on the investment team at Andreessen Horowitz. Wei has an MBA from Harvard Business School, a JD from Harvard Law School, and a bachelor's in applied physics from Caltech. You were not uh, skipping your homework, were you? <laughs> it was definitely too many degrees, Rachel. I'll, 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 I'll say that. Wait, how are you seeing the investment landscape for AI? From my point of view, nothing's getting funded that doesn't have an AI angle. And I know a lot of people are worried that we're just throwing money at everything. Well, it's definitely an exciting time, you know, when it comes to the landscape of generative AI and what that means from an investment standpoint. I mean, you certainly have a lot of capital going into companies really addressing and looking to incorporate AI all across the stack. We would characterize it as a generational platform shift you know, that is going to have lasting, significant impact. Now, I think the question really is then, where are the real opportunities in, in the short and near term versus longer term? And how should people think about it? And so I, I do think we're definitely in the hype cycle, yeah. for sure. You know, I, I think there, there are definitely a lot of EA companies that, you know, over the long run are not going to make it. But I think from an investment standpoint, we really try to understand and seek out the opportunities to partner with founders we're looking to go after big opportunities where AI can have significant impact. And I, I think the most exciting thing around AI is, you know, it holds the potential to really fundamentally change the way that we all interact and, and leverage software. And, you know, I think there are stepping stones to what that means, you know, in terms of the infrastructure and tooling required, the applications that will emerge, you know, leveraging AI. But, you know, definitely we're very excited and I would say cautiously optimistic about, you know, the promise that AI holds for all of us. Um, I think in terms of some of the, the bigger opportunities, you know, I focus a lot on infrastructure software, you know, as well as applied AI. And I think there's a ton of opportunities in terms of, you know, what are, you know, 30 million developers going to need to be successful with AI? Like, how are they going to take advantage of large language models and these different, you know, innovative technologies? And how are they going to build new applications with them? And I, I kind of analogize to 
previous platform shifts, when you saw the shift to cloud and the shift, the emergence of cloud native architectures, each of those drove really significant ecosystems of new companies who were you know, helping to solve people with those types of problems. I do want to come back to the point about how developer work is going to change because I think that's incredibly interesting. Do you worry at all that generative AI in particular with its, you know, huge hunger for cycles and, and energy is giving an advantage to the incumbents that wasn't necessarily the case with previous platform shifts like cloud? I think the incumbents have certain advantages, I, I would say, Rachel. And it de- I think it depends on the lens in which you look at them. I mean, certainly there's the very large tech companies who have been working on AI and have been investing significantly in research for years and years, and, and that has you know, given them a head start. There's also this notion of existing incumbents in you know, different market categories who are going to augment and extend their, their products using LLMs and AI and models and so on. And so the way I think about it is that as a startup, LLMs by themselves don't necessarily justify the existence of a new standalone company. I think you have to think of it through the lens of what is really the why now that drives you know, the mission for a brand new company and, and how can someone you know, ride the AI tailwind? And I think that has different impact in different categories. For some incumbents, I think the threat of AI or the promise of AI is almost existential mm-hmm. you know, to their business. And in other cases, that's not the case. You know, I think the example I would cite is, you know, Take a company in the observability space like Datadog, you know, since we're talking about you know, developers and dev tools and things like that. You, you can definitely see them extending and augmenting their capabilities with LMs. And so if you want to go build a new observability company, you know, saying that you're going to leverage AI is not enough in and of itself. Yeah. You know, and, and I have seen many of these companies with really the same story. And so you don't necessarily you know, come across as differentiated and you might question whether your insight is truly unique or not. Versus, I think, in, in other categories, and it could be observability as well, you could completely rethink the workflow or user experience or come up with something really differentiated using AI and AI becomes more of a means. And those are the types of opportunities that I, I'm more interested in. So I, I think incumbents can definitely have an advantage but it also, I think, is not sort of one size fits all. I think it's it's somewhat more nuanced and dependent on you know the individual category and and to some extent you know how a company thinks about it. Makes sense. Uh, listeners who are keenly interested in applications of LLMs to observability, don't miss our episode with uh, Liz Fong Jones and, and Philip from Honeycomb talking about uh, their query builder. Wei, are you looking at other areas of of AI, are you looking at different machine learning? Where do you see the most promise? You know, it, it's interesting you ask that because in, in some respects, AI is an extension or part of the continuum you know, that ML lives on. You've had people working on ML and sort of a whole generation of you know, what we would call ML ops companies that have existed for some time. And I think the real difference with AI has been that, you know, in what I would call maybe sort of the MLOps era, and I say that, you know, it's sort of like the previous generation, and frankly, it's not that long ago. 18 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, for, for me, I, I think of it as more characterized by a time when you had 
a certain set of companies with dedicated machine learning, you know, engineering teams who are solving for particular use cases, you know, underwriting, fraud detection, recommendations. I think what's really changed and what, you know, this newer set of sort of generative AI models drives is the opportunity to really expand beyond all those use cases and, you know, sort of make AI ubiquitous across all sorts of different types of applications. To me, I'm actually most interested, you know, if you're talking about how you kind of go from that set of companies to where we are now is how people can really make AI more accessible. You know, I think making it easy for any engineer out there to take advantage of, you know, the capabilities of large language models and so on. And I think that there's also this whole dimension of you have trends like you know, open source models and so on that are democratizing and making more options available to users, you know, alongside proprietary solutions that are giving you, you know, an API, basically, a very easy way to interface and actually use these capabilities that don't require a whole specialized, you know, engineering or ops team to to take advantage of. So I, I view that as, in some sense, it's all ML, but I think the really, the big distinction is more like, what does it mean for engineering teams, what does it mean for businesses who want to build new applications or, or you know, have internal use cases for LLMs and how can they more easily take advantage of it versus the fact that ML was quite difficult to actually, relatively difficult to implement if you went back not too long ago. That's something I'm really excited about too, the, the potential of democratization. In our working lives, we've seen programming on from 5 million to 50 million we've all been wondering, you know, how do we get to 500 million? And I think a lot of people are looking at Gen AI and thinking this could be the, the, the shift that makes that possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly think so. There's this notion, I think, that every company, nearly every company will become an AI company at some point because even if something isn't, you know, fully AI native, there's a lot of opportunities to augment the existing with AI, you know, take, cybersecurity, take financial services, take these different categories or verticals. At a minimum, I think AI can often provide, you know, sort of more an assist or a supportive type model alongside what people are already doing in order to make them, you know, either more productive or to unlock, you know, the ability to to drive better outcomes or, you know, be more efficient or more effective. So I do think there's this idea that across all these different potential applications, you know, it's not necessarily that AI is going to full-on replace things as they look today, but I do think that things will look markedly different if at a minimum you have the sort of like co-pilot model for, you know, a lot of different applications that people uh, are trying to build. Are there areas of AI that you see being massively overhyped at the expense of substance? Are there, there areas you think are overcapitalized right now? Well, I think that there's definitely a lot of attention on, you know, the outsized amounts of capital that are going into foundation model companies. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's not warranted, though. I mean, I think to, to go build in that space, you know, it's capital intensive and you need to be appropriately positioned to be able to you know, go train and, and, and build and develop a new model. I do think, you know, there are areas around 
what we would call applied AI, you know, certain things, you know, at the application layer where there's many, many people trying to incorporate AI, a lot of funding going towards it, but with relatively little differentiation. And so I think as a founder, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think, you know, beyond the fact that you're using, you know, LLMs or some form of AI, like, where does your unique insight stem from? Like, you know, are you rethinking the user experience in some way? Are you building some kind of domain-specific model or something that provides more defensibility? I I think it's worth thinking through these things because there's too many people out there right now that are sort of just overhyping, you know, the promise of AI. I think the other area I would point to that seems overhyped is people getting ahead in terms of what they're promising you know, what AI is capable of. I hear pitches around AI is going to full-on replace software development teams right now. You know, and so I do think that people are leaning a bit, you know, forward on the skis right now. And, you know, if some (laughs) folks are, you know, in terms of what they're trying to promise, I think that if you look at what these LMs are capable of, you know, there's certainly a lot that's encouraging and a lot that is immediately applicable, but there's still a lot of room and a lot of challenges that need to address for them to actually have the impact that, you know, over the long term that we think they maybe aspire for it too. Let's talk about the developers. How do you see Gen AI in particular enhancing or detracting from the work that developers do? And feel free to mention Prompt, which is how you and I met uh, Mike Sorker's company, which is building a new terminal. Yeah, and um, I'd love to also hear some of your thoughts on this, Rachel. I think the way I look at this space is in the last couple of years, you know, there's been, you know, incredible impact of products like GitHub Copilot, you know, which I would point to really as, you know, today one of the most widely adopted applications of LLMs and significant success, you know, across 100 million in revenue, millions of developers using it. And I think that is a model for how AI can help here and now, you know, and so you have this sort of AI coding assistant type model that really augments the experience for developers to help make them more productive. I think, you know, with what Mike is building at Prompt, it's also along, you know, similar line where here you have, if you consider the terminal, I mean, it's been around for a long time, you know, I would say has not, really benefited from or experienced much in the way of innovation. And I think AI is one of those catalysts that can provide sort of, you know, a step change in terms of making it a lot better and helping developers be more productive and unlock new types of workflows in terms of how they go about their daily work and and really allowing them to focus on what most of them enjoy most, which is sort of the creative aspect of building new things. So a lot of folks who are, are saying, you know, does AI end up cutting into the number of developers out there over time? My view is, I think we're a long, long way off from, you know, AI being able to actually, or AI agents being able to actually replace software developers. I think that the assistive model is what we'll see for a long time. And then I would actually say, if you kind of expanded your notion or definition of developer, I think AI actually has the ability to to grow the number of developers. If, if you know there's this 
concept of like an AI engineer who can easily work with LLMs and, and AI models. And I think that that's a really awesome thing, you know, where over the last couple of decades, you've seen the number of software developers increase enormously to about, you know, 30 million now. And I think if you can turn more people into, you know, AI engineers, I mean, that, that's, that's a huge opportunity. But I, I'm curious to get your thoughts, Rachel, on how you think, you know, AI can either help or, or negatively impact developers and, and what they do. I have so many thoughts on this. Thank you for asking. I do see a, a tremendous bifurcation in how I would say two very broadly defined groups of programmers approach Gen AI and incorporating it into their work. And one is what I'd characterize, not in a derogatory way, but the naive use where people ask ChatGPT to give them some code for something and then they cut and paste that code. And that can work on a very small scale, but I would say that characterizes a, a tactical and, and slightly blinkered view of what a coder is trying to do. When you talk to really senior systems architects, I had Mike Wallace on the show for another episode. He, he, he runs the, the infrastructure for a big gaming company called Global Worldwide. What Mark and programmers like him, architects, I would say, are really doing in their day-to-day -day work is, is balancing many, many trade-offs in a, a multivariate space in order to optimize resource use against particular desired outcomes. And so they have this enormous system spinning in n-dimensional space in their head. And when they're harnessing ChatGPT to help with that, they're using it in that very tactical way, but they also have the experience and the context to be able to easily spot hallucinations and uh, misapprehensions and so they're able to incorporate even AI-generated code in a way that accounts for those large systems issues. I guess there's a third model that I, I hope to see emerging, which is that tools like LLMs will help junior programmers become senior architects by, by helping them to develop that intuition. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think LLMs have the ability to you know, sort of turbocharge what developer is you know, capable of. And I do think that certainly aside from you know, autocomplete functionality and you know, sort of you know, working within the code base, I, I do think there's an opportunity for AI to also help developers level up. In fact, I think like if you look at kind of developments in the AI coding space today, you know, a lot of people have this idea of you know, enabling and, and a coding assistant to function as a junior developer that you know, one can interface with in a more collaborative way, and then you potentially start to sort of like supervise the work of that AI agent. But but you know, again, I think like from a standpoint of it becoming fully autonomous, we're we're still a ways out. But I think it's been it's been very encouraging to to actually see and observe what these folks have demonstrated using uh, LLMs today. Do you worry about the risks of particularly your portfolio companies harnessing commercial LLMs, which are a lot of times are black boxes? Do you factor that into investment decisions? You know, I think of it more as a technology choice that companies and businesses have to make. I think there's implications of those choices. You know, for instance, going with a your commercial or proprietary solution, you know, may mean your your cost structure looks different. You know, it could mean that as you're trying to, depending on 
type of company you're building and type of customer you're selling into. I mean, people have more questions around, hey, how is my data being used if you're you know, utilizing OpenAI or something like that? But to me, I think it's, it's a technology choice. And I think that it's one with trade-offs. You know, I, w- one of the things I've been most excited about and have written quite a bit about is all the developments around open source models in the last year or so. And I think the great thing about that is you know, now teams have more choice and flexibility in terms of what they adopt outside of the, the commercial solutions. But that has its own drawbacks too. You know, you know, deploying, managing, you know, running your own models, you know, maybe standing up your own infrastructure. I mean, that's also not necessarily for the faint of heart. So I think startups in particular should kind of weigh these different trade-offs and figure out what's what's best for them and just be aware of the implications on both sides. But I wouldn't say it, I, I'm worried, but I think that, you know, I, I do spend time discussing, you know, sort of those considerations with, with the founders that I, I work with. When you're considering an AI or any other investment, what qualities are you looking for in founders? Yeah, so it's a great question, Rachel, because, you know, there, there's certainly a set of things we look at or, or consider that are maybe more specific to an AI or AI-enabled company. But it really ulti- you know, fundamentally starts with the, the why now. And I think that's true for any company, whether you're AI or not. You know, what's the reason you're needed? Like, why does the world need another company that does what you do? And I think along those lines, like, you know, what is your unique insight or almost unfair advantage to go after the opportunity? So I think that's true regardless of, you know, sector. And it's something that, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, with the companies that I get to know. But those are some of the things that I would look for. I think the things that are maybe more specific to, AI, you know, we're, we're in, a, in an emerging market around all things AI. And so I think really understanding and, and trying to assess where, you know, do the relative problems and pain points exist today versus, you know, what will come later is, is really important because, you know, as a startup, you know, you have to survive in advance. And I think that starts with really identifying what I think of as an urgent pain point. And there's some parts of building in AI today where people are like, yeah, this is, this is a huge friction, like it's a blocker, versus there are some things that are sort of nice to have, and I'm going to go figure that out later. So I think really making that distinction, and I mean, it's hard in, in a market that is, is very noisy, and there is all this attention, and things are moving so quickly, and you're trying to stay on top of all these developments from week to week is, is pretty challenging. But I, I think that it's really worth, as a founder, putting in the time to be thoughtful about some of those questions. And at the very least, I think it'll position you to you know, increase your, your likelihood of, of success. Yeah, I think founder market fit is a top-line criterion that's all too often overlooked. Is there something that you wish founders knew at the beginning of their startup journey? You know, it's funny you ask that. I think, I think my answer would be like that, that they knew how hard it was. Yeah. But then if they knew how hard it was, maybe they wouldn't want to start something. You know? <laughs> but I, I, I do think that you know, one of the things I see many successful founders share is you know, this sort of humility that they don't have it all figured out. And the faster you can learn 
and the more open you are to learning and adapting quickly, I think puts you in such a strong, you know, much stronger position as a founder of any company. Now, I do think that you have to have a strong point of view on things, but I would say, you know, somewhat loosely held. And especially as you're in the early phase of company building, getting to product market fit, I, I think that's where it's paramount because it's extremely rare that someone gets it right, right out of the gate. And the more you have this mindset of, I'm going to iterate quickly and I'm going to learn quickly because I have some good hypotheses or assumptions, but I don't have the full picture yet, I think the better off a founder will, will be. But that takes a certain degree of both humility and also self-awareness as a founder, but also using that to inform who, who do you team up with or who do you bring on as your supporting cast and how do they complement you to go do that sort of process effectively, you know, to go learn really quickly, to go sniff out the key problem and pain and you know, what that means for the company. So I, I would say that's the thing I, I wish founders would know. And it comes from a place where having been a founder myself, like I know the pain of getting a, you know, the product wrong. And it's very hard to unwind. And when I look back at my own journey, we could have mitigated against that risk if we had just been more open to questioning some of our assumptions. I, like you, am drawn to relatively low ego founders. And I think that does make it harder for them in an industry that prioritizes, you know, insane self-confidence over many other valuable qualities. But I think what characterizes the most successful low ego founders is that they've found a user base, a, a customer that they are willing to champion and that they're willing to exert resilience and grit for the sake of other people in a way that they might not necessarily do for themselves. And I think that makes people very evangelical and very empathetic with their, with their beachhead customer base in a way that's, that's really generative of, of great companies. I totally agree with that, Rachel. I think like authenticity matters a lot you know, in terms of how you engage with, with really everyone, whether it's your users and your customers or your internal team or whoever it is. I think, you know, as a founder, you know, bringing that empathy, bringing that authenticity, it, it really counts for a lot. And I would say especially even more so, there's more tension on that. You know, for instance, if you have a community and you have a following where you're not just leading a company, you're, you're, you're actually leading a group of people who are enthusiastic about, you know, a particular mission and problem that you're solving and, and they want to be engaged and they want to be active and they want to be involved. I do think, you know, what you're saying is really, really important. And, and it can't be outsourced. Like it has to come from you as a founder, you know, it can't, it can't be delegated. And I do think that that is sometimes not fully appreciated necessarily at the outset by some people. I think there are founders who are like, DevRel is, is something that I can hire someone to do and they don't understand that it's that connection with, as you say, the community. And not every founder is going to look like a traditional tech evangelist or DevRel person, but there is a way that every founder who's solving a meaningful problem can find a way to communicate authentically with the people that, that they're trying to work with. And I think 
it is part of the founder's journey to find that voice, to find that passion and that ability to speak clearly. Oh, I, I totally agree with you, Rachel. And it's, it's so I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, I, I work with a lot of especially open source founders who face this type of situation. And in fact, I was just chatting with the founder last night of, you know, a really successful AI platform. And he's like, you know, like being sort of like this like prominent voice and so on doesn't come naturally to me. But I know I need to engage with sort of my my user base and, and my community. And so, you know, what we were talking about, and there's something similar to you, is finding the right way to bring out that voice. And then where I do think things like, you know, folks like you know, DevRel and Dev Advocates and Evangelists can help is they can help amplify it. Yes. But I do think that as a founder, you know, you have to think through what is your your voice. You know, because in most of these cases, people are actually really hungry for thought leadership or hearing from someone they respect, you know, in terms of how to think about a problem space. Like, especially in the, in this sort of emerging AI paradigm, people are like, how do I go about solving some of these things? What is the right way to think about it? And people are actually really excited about hearing from someone you know, who is knowledgeable, you know, and who has a unique point of view. I, I think there's also other scenarios where you might need to be a little bit controversial. You, know, you might need to be a bit of a lightning rod, and you can't necessarily shy away from it. But I do think that can come in different forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you're always vocal in front, you know, on, on Hacker News. or There's other ways to engage with the user base, get to know people, in smaller settings, in one-on-one, virtually, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunities to build relationships and have that authenticity come through. And in the long run, that really helps build trust within your user base. And that can lead to really awesome things in terms of how it propels either your project or your product or, you know, eventually your, your, your business. But I very much strongly believe uh, as you were alluding to, you know, DevRel and evangelism and these things, they, they can't be delegated, at least certainly not in the, in the early days. You know, community leadership has to come from the founders and the voice for that has to come from the founders. I do think there's ways to, you know, sort of stand up the megaphone, so to speak, though, to get the message amplified. When I think about the breakout successes of my career, VMware launched Darkly, Aviatrix, Honeycomb, not only did the software reflect the character of the original founder, the community that was drawn to the software reflected, you know, an interest in hearing the voice of the founder because, you know, your code and what you write and what you say, they're all different aspects of, of how you solve problems in the world. I just find it fascinating, you know, we've, we've built this industry that we pretend is entirely STEM, but in fact, the soft skills and the ability to write and persuade are, are intricately braided all through it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I would say in some markets, it's, it's, it's essential. You know, take the cloud native community, you know, which emerged over a decade ago. For many people, that really changed the way they thought about you know, how you think about what I would actually call sort of like overall go-to-market, you know, like because the way you engage with your user base, the way you help 
foster and think about adoption what was very different from you know the world of just pure enterprise sales yes yeah. and so so i definitely agree with you that and, and i think this is where whether it's open source or plg or whatever it might be like you know the the concept of community is really powerful and provides a huge advantage to companies who can grow a significant community and successful community in addition to the underlying technology. So Wei, I'm going to make you the Lord Emperor of the solar system for the next five years. Everything in our industry goes exactly the way that you hope that it will. What does the world look like five years from now? What I think about and what I'm optimistic about, Rachel, is you know certainly we're in the thick of you know, the early days of AI right now. And I think if it plays out, I'm really excited for a whole new generation of companies and, and type, you know, sorts of businesses that we can't even anticipate emerging. You know, if I go back to cloud or mobile, these platform shifts, they gave rise to a whole new sort of class of companies and, and, and frankly, business models that didn't really exist prior to the emergence of you know, these underlying foundations. And so that's what I'm most excited about. You know, it's, it actually makes it hard to predict what that would look like. But to me, I actually think AI similarly can unlock a whole new set of generation-defining companies that we just don't understand yet. But I, I actually think that's one of the, the privileges of you and I and others, you know, spending time where we do is like you're seeing it kind of unfold day after day, week after week. And, you know, I think that there's a lot that the next five years will bring. Another thing that we've been working on during these five years is a colony ship to Proxima Centauri. As Lord Emperor, (laughs) it's your honor to christen it. What are you going to name our colony ship? You know, I didn't anticipate that question, Rachel. I mean, uh, I I would have to say, I, I don't know, I don't know the name, but where was the son of Apollo? You know, I, I, actually growing up, I was a big space fan. And so I think in the same way that, you know, we really push the boundaries, you know, with Apollo and I guess now Artemis, like I think it's a successor to that. So wh- whatever name that is, I, I would pick that one. Oh, Asclepius is a son of Apollo, the, the hero and god of medicine. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a mouthful, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think... Uh, it pays homage to uh, you know the notion that we stand on the shoulders of giants, which is true in in tech and software as well. Apollo had a lot of children. Another one is Orpheus, which would make for a very musical ship. But I do like the idea of the god of healing and medicine being our our patron saint on the the long journey. Yeah, that's cool. Way, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Rachel. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest or if you know someone awesome I should interview, hook up with us online. We're available where all fine social medias are sold. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.